every time a group of working class Americans or lower income Americans uh, begin to see they have some common interest and that they can build coalitions together, the response has been to a racialized insertion of difference. Welcome to episode two of our podcast, Tell Me What You're Reading, brought to you by Bookworms in the Wild and by Anchor. I'm Howard Alterescue. In our last episode, we talked about the history of comic books. Today, we take a sharp turn and discuss three books that cover the history of the United States, the Civil War era, and a call to action to bridge America's racial divide. Among other things, we discuss the 11 distinct regions of the country and their particular political, social, and emotional traits. We discuss President Ulysses S. Grant's pardon of the Confederate generals after the Civil War in order to preserve national unity. And finally, we discuss the need to find the right balance between acting locally and globally in order to have an impact on the issues we face in the nation today. I recently had the delight to talk about all of these issues with Dr. Hardin Coleman. Dr. Coleman served for almost 10 years as Dean of the School of Education at Boston University and is now a Boston University Professor of Counseling Psychology. As you will hear, Hardin is an impassioned educator. My wife Carol met Hardin several years ago when she served on an advisory board for the Boston University School of Education, and we have enjoyed getting to know Hardin and his wife, Gail, in the last several years. Hardin comes from many generations of teachers, social workers, and Episcopal ministers, one of whom operated the Underground Railroad in St. Louis, helping slaves flee captivity. When we were first getting to know Hardin, I learned that his father, William Coleman, was one of the lead strategists and co-author of the legal brief in the 1954 U.S. Supreme Court decision in Brown versus Board of Education, in which the court held racial segregation in public schools to be unconstitutional. Hardin's depth, commitment, and passion, likely born out of his rich heritage, comes through in his remarks. I hope that you will enjoy the discussion. When I told you about my podcast and said that I'd like to know what you're reading, you immediately replied, suggesting a conversation about three books that you thought might, as you said, paint a picture of what may be possible to keep the arc of history bending towards justice. You were paraphrasing, of course, the remarks of Dr. King, who said, yes, the arc of the moral universe is long, but it bends towards justice. And you chose three really fascinating books to discuss. Tell us about those books and how they relate to each other. This this should be very interesting. Well, great. Yeah, the the, the three books, uh, I did not think about reading them as a a group. They weren't recommended as a group. But as I go through the, you know, you find books and they come forward from people, uh, recommendations uh, online, etc. I had read these three books um, independently and together they painted a story for me. And and the first one is American Nations by Colin Woodward, where he makes, he he suggests that there are 11 distinct uh, 
political and social, emotional cultures within the United States. And he, the, the premise that he uses that if you look at these 11 American nations, they begin to explain uh, why uh, the the electoral college, which is what drove me to the book at the time. This was pre the uh, previous uh, election, and um, and he points out that where and who settled parts of uh, America created these very distinct groups. So uh, uh, the, it just quickly, the, the 11 nations are New France, the Midlands, Yankeedom, New Netherland, Tidewater, Greater Appalachia, the Deep South, uh, New France, uh, El Norte, um, the Far West, and the Left Coast. Um, and these <laughs> core, and, and, and then the First Nations, which is kind of a, uh, uh, is in different geographical areas. And, and, the, and the map, when people look this up, that there's a map that they have on the American nations and where, people, where, they, where these are geographically. But his point is these are distinct groups with distinct values. And then at different times across our history, they have reformed in different coalitions. And what was remarkable for me is the degree to which uh, they explain different uh, parties' ascendancies with what looked like the same group of people that one were what we call Reagan Democrats or Trump uh, Republicans. And, and, and we have all these names for small pieces of the groups. But uh, what was important for me in the reading was understanding and seeing that we tend to think in monolithic terms, Democratic Party, Republican Party. And then when there's shifts, we don't have an explanation because we look top down. When you look bottom up, these shifts in values become more apparent. And when we look bottom up, we begin to see where some of the coalitions across these groups can be used to build uh, greater unity. And so, for example, um, it, what was interesting to me was having grown up in what they call uh, in, in Pennsylvania, which is somewhere between the Midlands and New Netherland, was really this kind of classic commercially oriented information focused group and in and they swing between the political parties much more uh, uh, easily than let's say Yankeedom which is your classic New England uh, communitarian who may become Republican but at the base rate in the modern world would be this kind of uh, uh, socially liberal, fiscally conservative, um, open to uh, integrating immigrants is part of what they do versus and what I find the most fascinating, one of the more fascinating groups is what he calls Greater Appalachia, which is really this bedrock of American autonomy. The groups that believe it's kin first, it's your family first, and leave me alone. And, and these were the the Jacobites who leave England and they, after they do their serfdom in the, in the tide order, they move into uh, west from, from the coast and create these uh, mountain cultures of great autonomy and independence. And, though, and, and that really is an idea, a powerful idea that they took west with them. Um, that really is one bedrock of American uh, culture. So you have the individual, the autonomy seeking, Vegetarian, you have the commercial, and you can see, particularly, I think, uh, when you look at this last election, um, people make a big deal about the Trump base having elected him. But there's a piece out recently in the Daily that pointed out that only that 30% of of that base who voted for Trump 
voted for Romney, they voted for McCain, they voted for Bush. So that was not a new group he won. What he won was this group of educated, many of them white women, who had voted for Obama, and who were they? They were the ones in the Midlands and Greater Appalachia who uh, were who who value of autonomy and individualism was so powerful that they felt that the uh, federal government had moved beyond them. So that's that conversation in from Woodward I found very fascinating, very useful. So that, that, that's very interesting. And doesn't he also talk about how, and, and you alluded to it, I think, how the great Appalachians, there, there was a movement west. And, and you know, I, I think of uh, Southern California, where uh, you have a similar dynamic, I believe. And yes. I'm talking about Orange yeah. County in particular. Yes. So from that group, as as they they go through and, and, and they go right through, they were part of the far west to some degree. But that was that was inhabited by, you know, the far west was much more of a family movement where people came out and settled as families and as cultures uh, on large farms and large pieces of lands. But the Appalachians went through the through the Midwest and then and Southern California then becomes a similar culture competing to some degree with what what uh, Woodward called the El Norte, where you have this um, uh, uh, Spanish-oriented culture of family and community, and, and, and they live side by side. Given American politics and economics, the previous group had uh, ended up with more power, but the, there are still competing factors, which is why, again, you had this segregation in Arger County that looks more like Greater Appalachia, but around it, LA and other places, uh, you have very different cultures. So it, it's fascinating to try to see where um, what we've, what I, what I would call modern conservatism, which is a big belief in autonomy, a big belief in in self-regulation, a belief in small government, and the theory that the individual left unchecked, kind of an Ayn Rand approach, uh, will be the best product for us. Competing with the left coast, Yankeedom, uh, the Midlands, where people uh, uh, really had this this understanding that it's in the community, uh, the individual is important, but as they're part of a family and community. And that competing idea is very much in the papers every day. And I, I get very frustrated uh, reading um, New York Times, Washington Post, uh, and other uh, what I call mainstream media, where they where they 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 focus so much on the individual power and, and lose the um, focus of community to the point that they label these powerful, diverse movements, either you're for Hillary or you're for Trump. And that simplicity is not the type of elegant solution I think that Woodward would call for us, which is what made me very excited about reading the, um, the uh, biography of, of, of Ulysses Grant. Now, I read it before the... Uh, Chernobyl biography came out, but right. the one that I, I read by Ronald C. White, which I think captures some of the uh, same issues. What I found, you know, there are a couple of things that I found fascinating in the Ameri it's American Ulysses, A Life of uh, U.S. Grant by Ronald White. What I found really fascinating about that, that, beyond debunking some of the myths we have about him in terms of being an alcoholic, the myth about him actually, uh, that he actively was engaged in some corruption, all of which were generated by the uh, 
you know, the, 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 um, the, the Southern mystique of, of losing the war and part of what the South as it reconstructed as a villa, as a, that promoted the Southern leadership that leads to the statue issue today, one of their major targets was to defame Grant because th those two went hand in hand. And we've kind of, as we've, we've kind of inherited this theory that Grant was, you know, kind of um, uh, incompetent, but what this biography points out was not only was he phenomenally competent, um, the fact that he, if he had wanted to, he could easily have been our first three-term president. Uh, he was so popular and effective, but core to his winning the Civil War and core to his approach to effect, uh, to uh, uh, federal leadership was a strong, deep belief in an effective, efficient government. A civil service. He, he was an engineer, and 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 uh, White does an excellent job in in the book of pointing out at that one of the things that allowed uh, Grant to be so successful in the Civil War was his history as a quartermaster, where he knew that the infrastructure, a well-organized infrastructure is what led a prepared you to take advantage of moments within battle and so be able to move troops efficiently to uh, uh, organize um, the food chains all those were central to his ultimate uh, success within the Civil War which then he when he took over from the disastrous Andrew Johnson and I speak of this and one of the things that uh, struck me in reading this book is, is as an African-American I am uh, somewhat embarrassed that I didn't realize how much Grant was so pro-support uh, for the aspirations of the then freed slaves more than Lincoln, and certainly Johnson was an active agent in support of the Black Codes, and that it was really Grant who led to uh, initial opportunities for African-Americans using the federal government as, as a tool in a way that I had never heard. Uh, so that I was really fascinated by that. And his belief in, the, in, in federalism as a way to improve conditions for all. So certainly he powerfully uh, uh, pardoned all the Confederate generals, right? And so at a point where one could have uh, advocated for their uh, being tried for treason, he was eager to build bound, uh, rebuild uh, relationships uh, between the North and South and using the federal government as an agent of positive change. And, and, and as you can probably pick up from both my uh, things about Woodward and, 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 and White's uh, calculus of Grant, you know, the, the thing that a, as a African-American, uh, historically, we've been hugely dependent on the federal government to uh, uh, provide the type of support that we need in terms of making progress when let, because when we're left to local control, and I think the Woodward book uh, points out exactly how this happens, when we're left to local uh, decision-making, uh, we are historically disenfranchised. Which brings me to the third book. So the third book, uh, Third Reconstruction, um, speaks to how over the period of time, and, and since he's in North Carolina, when you relate him to the Woodward uh, um, book, he's growing up in the in between the tide water and the deep south. So this is, you know, very unique uh, uh, place uh, in American history, where you have this combination of uh, landed gentry 
and small holders, um, uh, small farm holders, and then huge slave populations, um, and then some some uh, indigenous uh, First Nations people, but uh, not, particularly after Andrew Jackson, not so many. Um, where you have, and he talks about this long history of uh, pre-Civil War, post-Civil War, early 1900s, um, every time that a, a group of working class Americans or lower income Americans uh, begin to see they have some common interest and that they can build coalitions together, the response has been to, to respond with a racialized insertion of difference. And so to drive the poor black and the poor white apart, to to promise to the and this particularly true in the Tidewater Appalachia um, in the Deep South, and 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 was fundamental to how you could uh, uh, create an army in the Civil War to create this image that your interest, you as a poor person, poor farmer. Your interest in autonomy and self-generation uh, 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 and your opportunity to be wealthy uh, will be taken away by the Northerners in favor of these Blacks. And you see this happen time and time again, and, and we have a history of that, where people who have common interests for um, um, social development and economic social development are then pitted against each other by race. And what Barber is working on, and, and Barber uh, made his uh, initial name by having risen to the head of the NAACP in uh, North Carolina, resigning from that post and withdrawing from the NAACP with the argument, it's a very powerful uh, argument, that the NAACP had become more about preserving itself as institution than and which demands a racialized uh, identity versus looking for common ground across racial groups. And his theory of the third reconstruction is that you can overcome these politics of division and fear, which is the subtitle, by bringing people of different races and, and different economic settings together to explore their common interests and build a movement out of those localized uh, uh, um, common interests versus trying to do a either a statewide or a federal approach, which end up being, as we saw in the last election, overly focused on people's ideas uh, individual identities and not focus on the common ground. So the reason I see these three books is working together in my mind and creating this powerful image of this, this, this need to reframe the way we think about the next stage of, of, of development for the country as we, as we tr try to uh, live out what my father, your father, and, and many people see as the American promise, which is that all individuals, regardless of the background, will have equal opportunity to find ways to acquire family-supporting jobs and, and, and move forward their family within a community. And maybe I'm sounding too much like a uh, New Englander here, and I am, I would say I'm a communitarian, but this idea that uh, by understanding our common interests and what binds us 
in our local situation, within our local culture, is the most important step forward. And 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 when you and these three books together, uh, really for me, point out the deep failure of the narrative within the Democratic Party. I mean, I want the failures in the Republican narrative, which are divisive. They're 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 about believing that you know, it's an eye of the needle. Only certain some people are going to get ahead, and and we're going to make sure that you are one of those. Versus the Democrats, who I think overinvested in the politics of uh, of of identity and individualism, and and anti uh, corporate uh, sentiment, versus looking at what what are the lived experiences of people who are not taking full advantage of of our American promise, and what are the systematic uh, failures of government to that keep them down, and how can we think about an effective, efficient government to use grants phrases to bring together these disparate cultures and find the common ground so we can move forward collectively serving without homogenizing everybody right and so those these three books for me point to what well, I I start thinking about it this third way which is a message and it doesn't and and you could be say um, party of Lincoln grant um, and the Rockefeller uh the first bush or you can say i'm the party of uh roosevelt and truman and kennedy and you can still make the argument that a highly effective efficient government is the infrastructure that we demand in order to create opportunities so everyone has access to a family supporting job and one can only achieve that if you deeply engage in the localized conditions so howard dean's theory that we should have done a, the democrats should run a 50 state uh, campaign is these three books point to the validity of that idea and when you look at uh, the democratic failure in the last presidential election it was their failure to really uh, focus on on localism as a way of building a, an efficient federal approach. And the Republican success is because they did the opposite. So that's my yeah. rant for the day. <laughs> well, well, thank you. So, so many things come to mind. Um, certainly, I can see, well, I saw clearly the relationship between the, uh, the first book that talked about the 11 uh, rival regional cultures of North America uh, and the way in which uh, Colin Woodward described the uh, the reason for people thinking and behaving the way they do, did or do based on where they came from historically. But, um, and I see how that certainly relates to uh, uh, Dr. Barber's book. Uh, mm -hmm. the, uh, and, and, but you tied it together uh, uh, with Grant and the focus on effective and efficient government uh, to find common ground. Having said that, uh, going back to the first book, what about mobility? So pe people came from where they came from, and, and I find fascinating his uh, the, the discussion about, well, Yankee Dunn and Appalachia and the history of where people came from. You know, we've, we, I always think about uh, both Pennsylvania and Minneapolis that way. Having said that, People travel all over the country. We have no barriers, and there's been a lot of mobility. Do those original traits 
from two, 200, 300 years ago persist? You know, I, I, I think they do. And I also am not as, I, I think that uh, mobility, one, currently, we are no longer as mobile as we used to be. And so right now, mobility is significantly reduced generally there's still there's still populations who um um are movement they tend to be uh those who uh either are economically destitute and have to move and that's not happening so much because if you're economically destitute destitute you're probably undereducated and you know the, the payoff for moving is not as great you you, you need that social network of your home i mean the yeah. book the hillbilly elegy uh comes to mind there about people who end up staying in their communities uh because that's where they have the most social support, even if there are better economic opportunities elsewhere. So it tends to be those of us in the top 10% who are, are are theoretically mobile. But even the, the and then and but all the housing data says that we're moving to communities of kind. So you know my kids are going to get up and go to Oakland and San Francisco, maybe LA. I doubt they're going to move to Orange County, right? Yeah. And they're doubt they're going to move to San Diego. Uh, and, 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 and so, so I'm not, I think when people move, I think they still find communities of kind, whether it's the church, common church, common, uh, socioeconomic groups, common type of work. Uh, so I think that they carry these cultures with them. Um, uh, and then where you move, uh, begins to take on uh, uh, significant power, and and not, not to say it won't change over time. So you know, having spent 17 years in Wisconsin, uh, from a distance, I'm watching this shift from a progressive communitarian, uh, a German progressivism that dominated German Scandinavian progressivism that dominated uh, Wisconsin from the early 1800, late 1800s when they were wresting control from the commercial Yankees to create this, uh, this, uh, this, this theory uh, across multiple ethnic groups of common ground of progressivism coming out of Wisconsin now being shifted to a more tribal, uh, um, kind of a tidewater, deep south. It's about me and my people, and if I'm taken care of, that's sufficient. So I'm not saying it won't change. And that, to me, is the power of ideas. I mean, the, 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 that um, I don't think people are as fixed, but these are, these are 11 powerful ideas that are part of who we are, and they beyond uh, geographic ranges, but they have common uh, qualities. And these are acceptable ideas that uh, can, you know, when, when used effectively, and, 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 and Scott Walker in, you know, in, um, in Wisconsin has been masterful at changing the dialogue about, about what it means to be a Wisconsinite. Um, in a way that was unfathomable uh, 23 years ago. But these are not new ideas. He's bringing these out of this kind of uh, combination of tidewater, deep south uh, autonomy, and and um, 
uh, land, you know, if you support the landowner and pretend you have access to property, that's the best way to uh, structure one's uh, uh, social uh, environment and regulatory environment. Fascinating, fascinating. So on, on the um, uh, grant book by White, and, and it probably comes out in Chernow book itself, or, or the question really is, what is it that motivated grant uh, not not on uh, effectiveness of government, you, you described that, but you talked about his support for uh, blacks after the Civil War, after uh, Reconstruction. And I'm reminded about Carroll's book, uh, Path to Power, about uh, Lyndon Johnson, and how uh, mm -hmm. he, here's a man from the South who, who uh, championed uh, the civil rights, was a, a big champion of the civil rights movement, and, and Martin Luther King. And despite his shortcomings, uh, which we can spend an entire different uh, podcast talking about, but insofar as support for civil rights, um, a surprise to everyone. But Carol talks about how Johnson, as a boy, was economically discriminated against and, uh, and worked with uh, or, or was familiar with local poor uh, uh, Mexicans in, in Texas. Uh, uh -huh. and, and he remembered that. that so, so what is it that motivated General Grant, President Grant, to uh, take the actions he took? You know, I, I, I think that, you know, White constructs it as, you know, he come, that Grant comes out of a uh, small uh, landowning family where his father was a craftsman and he joined that business. He was a tan, I think tannery. Uh, what was the was their business? He saw the opportunity to go to the military academy and be judged by his merit was his step up, and he found that to be a very engaging and exciting life. Um, and in, and then he marries into a southern household that was of, of some value and wealth, and his his wife's family were actually slave owners, and and um, so he you know he gets to meet. People from the Southwest think influence some of his decisions later about the, uh, um, 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 the pardoning he did of the Southern office officers. But he had that deep conversation about slavery versus non-slavery. He was in a part of the country where this this tension between free labor and slave labor was powerful and 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 was an economic choice. And so he grew up in that. And then his experience in the military uh, allowed him to see the uh, importance of a effective infrastructure and how that would support economic development. And at the end of the day, I think when he saw the conditions of African-Americans uh, in the South during the war, I think he just made a more, I think he was able to make a moral decision. These are people, and if that's the case, they're Americans. And so what do we have to do to uh, bring this previously oppressed group into uh, an economic well-being? I'm not saying he's going to let his daughter marry an African-American. I'm not sure that he was that far, but I'm not sure he would let his daughter marry a Pole, you know, so, or, you know, so I think those <laughs> ethnic divisions were, were, were significant, but the ability to treat people as Americans was fundamental to um, his belief about the world. And he was able to follow through because, you know, and what, what you, what White suggests about him is that he was a personally moral person. And that he treated people with respect, and expected it, and treated people, and and he had a, the humility as as represented in the way he dressed and 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 the way he treated his soldiers 
that he uh, believed in other people and believed in, in this kind of uh, communitarian uh, event. And blacks were part of that. And, and, and you can see that through history. You know, good people making decisions based on their time, whether blacks were real people or not real people, and how that affected their behavior. Uh, and Grant, I think, like Johnson, uh, decided that these historically disenfranchised people were done. It was done to them by the system. It wasn't because they deserved it. So I think I think that's why I put Grant and Johnson in the same uh, camp as having seen the other as real people and willing to use the exercise their power as versus for Grant versus a general and then as as a president to. Um, make the infrastructure changes necessary to give them opportunity. Right. So, it, so I can't uh, leave alone your statement, although maybe we will we'll spend time on this another time, that, that there are people who uh, we applaud for treating blacks as real people. It's startling, but, but realistic, realistic. Yeah. You, you, also, you also mentioned, you mentioned twice Grant's pardoning of Confederate officers. And of course, what comes to mind in a completely different era is uh, Ford's pardoning of Nixon? And I'm sure that I'm sure in both cases there are lots of complex decisions. Yeah, but certainly on the surface, in both cases, the pardon was is thought to be have been for the good of the nation as a whole, to to end a crisis. Is that a good a correct characterization? Yeah, I, 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 I think for Grant, Grant, I think Grant uh, saw you know it, it was a war between brothers, and, and Grant saw. People, you know, following their regional affiliations to support their communities and having fundamentally different ways about how the union should be constructed. He actually had a choice. He could have gone either way, and, uh, given his family's, his wife's family's background, and his background. And he chose the North because he's, at the end of the day, a Hamiltonian Federalist. Um, and uh, and he did not ascribe the Confederate officer's decision to a moral failing or, or treasonous, but unfortunate conflict to move forward. And so this, and for him, it was like 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 Ford's pardoning of Nixon. You know, this is a crisis, and we're not going by by uh, bringing people back into the fold. Um, you're going to be much more successful than then creating, you know, you know, the, the South still hates the North for Sherman's march to the sea, you know, that, that, that Grant permitted, right? I mean, not that Grant was all innocent on that, but uh, at the end of the day, I think he was, uh, he was about reconciliation uh, rather than uh, punishment. Mandela would be another example of, of having made that, you know, critical, powerful decision to move towards uh, unity uh, when you could, where many other places would have dissolved into uh, retribution. Yep, and um, we could use more such actions today. So one yep. final yep. point, uh, one final point, Dr. Barber's book, or Reverend Barber's book, uh, when I read about it, reminded me of uh, something uh, one of my professors in college said, so uh, Howard Zinn, uh, mm -hmm. who, who I was involved with civil rights advocacy and then anti-Vietnam War uh, protests for years at Boston University. And the very last class, the very last day of our senior year, he said to all of us, we've been through a lot together, but I want you to forget 
everything we've done on a global stage because no one of us can change the world. He said, what I'd like you all to do is go back into your communities and be good citizens. Mm -hmm. And I think that that's part of the message that, that I got out about reading about uh, the third reconstruction, a moral yeah. movement overcoming politics. Yes, and then that, that had these moral Mondays where people show up. Um, I, I, it's interesting. I, I, I'm not sure, um, and I, I think that's a tension. This is a, this is a great point of a, of a conversation. The tension is certainly, uh, I totally agree that one has to join uh, their local microsystem as a good citizen and do what needs to be done for the people within your touch. Your work with the Renaissance Center is, is, a, is an excellent example of that type of uh, good citizen and commitment that's absolutely necessary if we're going to improve the opportunities for the historically disenfranchised. But there's a system change level that even us ordinary citizens need to be attending to. I think it's easy, it sometimes less, less, leaves us off the hook to say, I'm gonna take care of, I'm, I'm, I'm gonna attend my garden and do my best job and bring, and, which I think we need to do. But if, I, you know, if I'm putting toxins in my garden and they're going into my pond and getting into Winnipesaukee and creating, you know, there, there's a macro system level that I also have to be aware of and be ready to act as I can in that as well. So it's a dual, you know, I, I think a lot of, um, and then this is where I am personally, and this is why these books were so important to me. I think of, well, what, what's my microsystem responsibilities? I think I had that down. I think I do that okay, no one's perfect. But it's really at the systems level of change, where should I be putting, you know, putting my uh, resources to add some weight to larger change issues. So, for example, my current, um, I'm thinking a lot about if we want to improve schools, we have to eradicate childhood poverty. You know, I, I can do the improved school piece because that's in my wheelhouse. You know, what's my job? Where, where, where can I help eradicate child poverty? And I think Barber feels that you have to take care of that community first, but you don't want to lose sight of the bigger system issues either. I, I think that's the right balance. I agree with that. You know, I, I quote Howard Zinn to so many people uh, today who say to me, what can I do? How can I get involved? And, mm -hmm. I, I, you know, and, and, and I'll talk about uh, doing something in your community, which will make a difference in the lives of people. But I think yep. you're quite right. You need to have a balance. You still need to have a, a global perspective. Mm -hmm. And uh, just like everything else, finding that right balance, resolving that tension uh, is critical. Now, have you have you started listening to, do you listen to Majority 54, a, a, a podcast by Jason Kander? I, I do not. I'll, I'll, I I'll, 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 I'll send you a recent podcast he did with a young woman who was involved in um, um, uh, refugee, legal refugee issues. Uh, she was doing it before the, the ban and afterwards. Yeah. But it, it, and, and his recent book, Beyond the Wire, it, it is about this issue. 
you know, wh- mm-hmm. you know, wh- what do I do as an individual citizen, and where do I go? But the, the podcast I just listened to, and I'll, 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 I'll send you the copy. Uh, it was a really nice, uh, nicely done interview with a young woman who, as a law student at Yale, made some decisions that allowed her to use her skills in a way that had impact and she had to choose where, you know, the whole thing. Oh, I want to do everything. No, no, you got to do one thing. And right. it's, a, it's a good piece. It's great. Well, uh, Hardin, thank you very much. This has been fascinating. When, once we get this all arranged and published, we'll think about doing another one because uh, I love your perspectives your deep thought about these things. And thank you very, very much. Great. And, 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 and if, I, uh, if I resolve my ambivalence in the appropriate way, I'll be bringing you back on. More information about our guest today can be found on our website, www.bookwormsinthewild.com. Our website also includes links to the books and other resources we referred to in our discussion. Thanks especially to my podcast team, Dave created the podcast with me and is my producer. Ron is responsible for art direction and design. Melanie, as always, is in control of most everything and has provided overall creative direction. Ben and Eden provide additional inspiration and support. And, of course, Carol is my muse, as well as my affiliate manager. The entire Wolfpack is also responsible for introducing me to most of our guests. Thanks also to the great Anchor team for making it free and easy to create the podcast. If you liked our podcast, please subscribe. And in any event, let me have your comments at bookwormsinthewild at gmail.com. Looking forward to seeing you on the podcast next week.